Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 57, The Sting. The situation was not looking good for Leontini. Hippocrates had been sent there by Syracuse to protect the town with a garrison of vagabonds, but he instead used the men to attack Roman forces. The Romans were understandably furious as they had a ceasefire with Syracuse, and told the Syracusans to exile the Carthaginian Hippocrates, along with his brother Epiclides. Epiclides didn't like the atmosphere, and fled to Hippocrates in Leontini, where Hippocrates turned the townsmen against the Syracusans. Rome and Syracuse decided to team up against Leontini, which is where we rejoin the action. Marcellus marched against Leontini with his whole force and tried to surround the town by ordering Appius to attack from the other side. But his men grew impatient and they launched the assault anyway and immediately took the town. But Hippocrates and Epiclides slipped away to the town of Herbessus. But, as we just stated, it was not only the Romans attacking the city. The Syracusans too were on the move, and as they advanced, they heard the story that the Romans had taken the town, which was true, and that they had killed every adult they could find, which was not true. The troops had no way of knowing this, and ground to a halt as the leaders tried to work out what to do. News of the slaughter was seemingly confirmed, but this was the beheading of 2,000 deserters, not of the citizens. The army refused to march onwards to Leontini, placing the leadership in an awkward situation. Leaving the army there was bad, but attempting to push on could lead to a mutiny which would be far worse. In the end, the troops were sent to Megara, while the leadership of the army went to Herbessus, hoping that they would be able to capture that town. They were unable to alarm the town into surrendering, so the generals chose to gamble. They would risk bringing the army there. With an army approaching Herbessus, Hippocrates and Epiclides took a risky option too. They left the safety of the town to meet with the army. The troops at the head of the march, and so the ones the brothers first met, were 600 Cretans. Soldiers from poor areas of Greece, such as Crete, had long been accustomed to serving as mercenaries, and this group of Cretans were sent to Sicily by Hannibal to serve in Hieronymus's army, just as Hippocrates and Epiclides had been. They were very familiar, as was most of the 8,000-strong Syracusan force. When a force so similar with the Carthaginian brothers met them, believing their comrades to have been killed by the Romans, should it really be surprising that they chose the Punic side? The 600 Cretans promised to stand by Hieronymus and Epiclides. Meanwhile, the Syracusan commanders were rather confused. Just why had the army stopped marching? By the time they heard that Hippocrates and Epiclides had appeared, it was too late. The troops up and down the line were happy to be with these two again. 
The commanders went to the front of the line, but they were already out of control of the situation. They ordered that Hippocrates and Epiclides be arrested, but the Cretans and the army as a whole protested so loudly that there was no chance that this was happening. They ordered the troops back to Megara, and sent word to Syracuse of the developing situation, afraid to do much else. Hippocrates was, as ever, keen to take advantage of the situation, and he did just that. He ordered some of the Cretans to guard the roads, and then read a letter to the army, which he had written, but which he claimed the Syracusan commanders had sent to Marcellus. The letter congratulated Marcellus on butchering the citizens of Leontini, and said that Syracuse could not be safe until all foreign troops had been killed. Along with the Cretans, it's reasonably likely that there were a number of mercenaries in the Syracusan force. Now, was your average squaddy capable of understanding such implications? That the Syracusans would soon be wanting to dispose with them? If not, Hippocrates made sure that they understood the gist of the letter clearly. It concluded by telling Marcellus to execute the troops which they were about to station at Megara, i.e. them. I get the feeling that Hippocrates is the brains in this operation, and while Epiclides constantly gets grouped in with his brother, he doesn't seem to contribute that much. All the plans and trickery have been coming from Hippocrates, who evidently had a brilliant mind and away with words. With all the confidence tricks he's been able to pull so far, I get the feeling that if he had been born into the world of the Great Depression, he would have made a marvellous grifter. Right up there with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. So, just how did the troops react to being told that their general was asking the Romans to kill them? Quite violently is the answer. There was uproar as the commanders fled back to Syracuse. The foreign troops turned against the Syracusan troops, with Hippocrates and Epiclides just managing to maintain control of the situation. They had to play a delicate balancing act of keeping the troops under their command as hostages, while at the same time keeping their own goodwill. But they were skillful enough to pull it off. They sent a soldier to Syracuse to vouch for the lies which had been spread about the Roman actions at Leontini, whipping the crowd into a frenzy. The man was taken into the council chambers, where he had an effect upon the government, who felt betrayed by the brutish Romans. They could not be trusted, and the gates were closed, and the city was guarded. The Romans would not sack Syracuse. While the Romans were now seen as a great danger, to many, the immediate danger was Hippocrates and Epiclides, who were now very close to the city. Messages were sent to the families of the soldiers, saying that they should be let into the city to protect it from the Romans, and the gates were opened. The magistrates could do nothing. They ordered that the gates be shut, but they were simply ignored. They fell back along with the army commanders, 
But the excited mob and returning army followed, broke through their defences and killed them all, except for a few who managed to escape. The violence could have continued, but stopped because of nightfall. The next day prisoners were released, slaves were granted freedom, and Hippocrates and Epiclides were elected generals. I've said before that Livy was an aristocrat, he supported Augustus, and didn't like the power of the people. This worldview definitely aids the drama of his account. He already has a skill with words, and his strong feelings about what is going on definitely make you feel the terror and excitement of what was happening, to a level which only resides in the nightmares of men like Livy. Not that I'm defending the mob by any means, I'm just saying, as always, be aware of how the author's worldview is affecting what you read, or, in our case, what you hear. Livy ends this passage, which you can find in Book 24, Chapter 32, by saying, Syracuseaque cum vere tempus libertas ad fulicet, in antiquam servitutem recidorant. The Syracuse, having enjoyed for a brief hour the light of liberty, fell back into her former servitude. While all this regime change was happening in Syracuse, just what did the Romans make of it? They had been allies with the Syracuse, the alliance was cancelled, and they were going to war. Then that was cancelled, and there was a peace treaty. Then they were attacked, then they were told the attack wasn't from Syracuse really, so they agreed to ally with Syracuse to take down the Antinni, Hippocrates and Epiclides. Then they did all the work and took the city, only to be informed that there had been a revolution at Syracuse, and Hippocrates and Epiclides had been elected generals. I'm quite sure that the Romans were not pleased. They immediately moved from Leontini to Syracuse, and set up their base a mile from the city. A delegation was sent, but Hippocrates and Epiclides prevented them from entering the city. The Roman envoy said he wasn't bringing war. The Romans wanted peace with Syracuse. They were there for those who had killed their allies, and if those were surrendered, there didn't need to be any bloodshed. Though, if these terms were not met, they would be forced to attack those who got in their way. Epiclides replied to the Romans, asking if these comments were meant for him and his brother, though he doubted he were. Perhaps they were best off returning when those who they were really addressing controlled the city. He then reminded them that Syracuse was a far tougher city to take than Leontini, and with that he left. And with that, the siege of Syracuse had begun. This is a very convenient point to end the episode, but I would like to cover one more thing. We have a very important character, not just in the Punic Wars, but in world history to introduce. You see, the Romans believed that Syracuse would be quite an easy city to take, overconfident following their simple capture of Leontini, during their first attempt. But one man more than any would make the siege of Syracuse a far more daunting prospect. Archimedes. 
Archimedes was born in Syracuse in 287 BC, and would become one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. When I was a kid, I read a book called Dead Famous, Albert Einstein and his inflatable universe. You may find it strange that a young, boring historian spent his spare time learning Einstein's theory of general relativity, but hey, I was a strange child. What is the point of this digression? Well, the book started with an image that has stuck with me over the years. It was an Olympic medal podium, Einstein standing on the top, Isaac Newton in second, with Archimedes in third. This is, of course, overly simplistic. Scholarship builds on scholarship. Einstein couldn't have been Einstein without the great minds which came before him. Human beings have not become smarter as time goes onwards. There is just more accumulated knowledge. But, regardless, were I to say that Archimedes was one of the greatest minds to walk the face of the earth, I doubt many would disagree with me. He was a distant relative of the King Hiero, which we know thanks to Plutarch, and his father was an astronomer named Fides, about whom we know almost nothing. In his youth, he travelled across the Mediterranean to Alexandria to study with the successors of Euclid, a name which will be familiar to those of you who have studied geometry. While there, he, according to tradition, invented the Archimedes screw. The Archimedes screw is a tube with a helical surface inside, which, when turned, lifts water uphill. This may not sound very impressive to modern ears with indoor plumbing, but moving water uphill is highly impressive. For instance, were you founding a town? Where would you found it? Near fresh water is the obvious answer, but if you built your town next to a freshwater lake, just how were you to access the water? Are your townsmen going to have to go into the lake to drink or wash? Are you going to dig a well and manually pull up buckets of water to the surface? Neither of these are very practical options when dealing with a large-scale community. Simply put, you could not move the water uphill out of the lake, so would have to bring water downhill from the hills. This is the Roman aqueduct. But anything which could move water uphill was a great invention. The design is still used today, everywhere from hydroelectric power stations to combine harvesters. Archimedes returned to Syracuse, where he would spend the rest of his life working on mathematics and inventing a way. Perhaps the most famous incident to happen, while here, was Archimedes' Eureka moment. While trying to work out how to measure the volume of an irregular object, he had a bath. Getting into the bath, he observed, as I'm sure all of you have, that the water level rose. Archimedes realised that the amount of water displaced was the volume of the body submerged in the water, solving the problem. He leaped up, shouting, Eureka! Similar to this was the Archimedes principle, which I'm sure most of my British listeners 
will have heard during Top Gear. When trying to cross the English Channel in an amphibious car, James May creates a dinghy with a keel. When his fellow presenters criticise him, he cites Archimedes' principle. When a body of water is wholly or partially submerged in a fluid, it experiences an upthrust equal in magnitude to the mass of the body displaced. I'm not going to pretend like I understand why or what this means exactly, but it is highly important in fluid mathematics. Should you like to see how it all turns out, it is Season 10, Episode 2 of Top Gear, the UK series, about 17 and a half minutes into the version on Netflix. I'd recommend watching it, it's a good show. It has been mentioned that some listeners like to keep Google close to them when listening, due to the obscure nature of some of my references, so that is for you. Season 10, Episode 2. Enjoy. Now aged 73, Archimedes was as brilliant as ever, and would be the linchpin in holding Syracuse's defences together. But this will have to wait until next time. If you enjoy the show, there are several ways you can support it. You can head over to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and leave a donation. Any amount is really appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to bring new people into listening, and costs nothing. You could also tell a friend. If everyone listening tells one friend to download the shows, heck, the show will have doubled its listenership overnight. And something I've created, but I don't think I've mentioned on the show, is that I'm on Vine. You can find me at the History of Pod, just like on Twitter. I've made a studio tour and a Halloween spooktacular, should you want to watch. If you are not a Vine sort of person, then you can just find these videos on YouTube. YouTube.com forward slash the history of podcast. But enough of the plugs. I'll see you in two weeks when we continue the story of Syracuse.